Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Ephesians chapter 2 that my Bible is opened up to, and I will make things very easy on you this morning. If you'll just find Ephesians 2 in your Bible and just leave it laying right there, we're going to work in the text all morning long, do a little bit of expository kind of preaching. Just going to work in Ephesians chapter 2 for these next few minutes. As you're turning there, let me echo the welcome that's already been extended to you. It is great to see everybody on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. I do bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at the Mount Washington congregation. You have wonderful brothers and sisters there. Had a really great week with those folks. You can pick up a bulletin and read a little bit more about what all happened there last week. But I'll tell you this, as much as I enjoyed getting to be with those folks and meet some new folks and uh, stand in front of a different kind of crowd... No place I'd rather be than right here looking at the faces that I'm looking at right now. In Ephesians chapter 2, let's get right to it. I want to notice just the first three verses to begin with. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, there Paul writes that you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Have you ever had the experience before of visiting someone's home, and it's a beautiful home. And so maybe you make the comment and remark, you say, wow, this is, a, this is a lovely home that you have here. And maybe the homeowner says, well, you should have seen the place before we got in here. And then maybe what the next thing to do is they may pull out their cell phone or they pull out a, a big photo album. And they start, start showing you all of these pictures of what the house looked like maybe 10, 15 years beforehand. Dilapidated. Fallen apart. The kind of place that looks like if you just... Blue, blue, you know, sneezed in its direction, it just come falling down to the ground. And we see that. We see the transformation that took place there, and we say, wow, that's, that's just really amazing there, the, all the renovations that taken place. Boy, especially whenever you see it side by side like that, that's just, that's just neat. Or maybe you've been watching one of those shows on the Home and Garden Channel or the DIY Network, and they open the program by showing this, this beautiful table, this beautiful hutch, a beautiful piece of furniture. Maybe it's an antique. Maybe it appears to be in excellent condition, probably worth a whole lot of money. And then the voiceover guy on the show says, but it didn't always look like this. And then they show you how they originally found that particular piece. It was badly damaged. It was burnt. Maybe maybe they found it on the top of some scrap heap somewhere. But somebody looked at it. Somebody saw the possibilities with that piece. They had an eye for what this thing could And so they went about the task. They went to great lengths of refurbishing this thing. You know, it's always remarkable to see the after product, isn't it? It's always remarkable to see that. But the truth of the matter is, we have a greater sense of awe for the after when we see what the before was like. Isn't that true? When we see what, what did this thing look like before somebody got in there and really did some work and really made it be what it is. Well, I believe in Ephesians, the second chapter, Paul is showing us some very dramatic before and after pictures. 
And no, the pictures that he is showing us in this chapter are not the creations or the work, the handiwork of some artisan, some craftsman, some skilled carpenter who labored with his physical hands and labored with wood or with metal or with stone. What he is showing us, he is showing us the before and the after of God's handiwork. Specifically, he is showing us the before and the after of God's grace. What did we look like before God's grace? How broken and damaged and flawed and blemished were we at one time? But by God's grace, what have we now become? What are the after effects of God's grace poured out in our lives? You know, as awestruck as we probably often are whenever we see before and after photos of a house or of a table that's received this radical transformation, how much more should we stand in awe of the before and the after pictures that involve our eternal souls? This morning, I would like for us to see why it is that those old hymn writers referred to it as amazing grace. What is it that made grace so amazing for those Christians who lived in the first century in that city of Ephesus? More importantly, what is it that makes grace so amazing for us even today? I want to just work right here within Ephesians chapter 2. Because in this chapter, I believe Paul shows us two sets of before and after pictures. I hope the breakdown of this chapter will help you to maybe remember and think about this chapter more often. It is one of the more important chapters, I believe, in all of the New Testament. And the very first picture that Paul is going to show us in this chapter is a before and after picture of our relationship to God. And if you haven't figured it out already, the before picture, it's not very pretty. Because as we just read in those first three verses, Paul says before we were dead in sin. Before we met the grace of God, verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sin. I appreciate the fact that Paul does not sugarcoat things here. He does not beat around the bush at all. In fact, I really can't imagine a much worse description than the one that he uses here. Dead. Spiritually dead. Dead. Dead why? Well, dead because, verse 2, we followed after the world. We were following after the prince of the power of the air. That's talking about the devil. Dead because, verse 3, we were only concerned about ourselves. We were only concerned with gratifying the thoughts and the desires of our heart, living out how we wanted to live. Paul says at the end of verse 3, what that merits is that merits us The wrath of God. We are deserving of God's wrath just like the rest of mankind. Death, Paul describes here. Sin brings about death. And that's not pleasant. I don't relish having to stand up here and preach that. But that is the reality. That we were dead. In the very beginning, God made us good. Go all the way back to the account in Genesis. God saw that He created man and it was good. But but we broke that. We messed all of that up. The implications of Genesis chapter 2 were very, very clear. You eat of that fruit, what's going to happen? You will die. And what was true for Adam all the way back in Genesis, it is true even for us today. That when we sin, we die. 
Sin causes us to be lost. Sin causes us to be separated from God. That's really what we're talking about here with this idea of being dead in sin. Some of our religious friends have wrong ideas about what that dead in sin business means. It means here to be separated. To have that relationship with God. To have that be severed as Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 talks about. That our relationship with God, it is in disrepair. It is broken. And in fact, if we continue in our sin, not only will we be separated from God in this life, but when our physical bodies die, we will be separated from Him for all of eternity. And that is the bleak, dark, sobering picture that Paul paints for us in those first three verses. Let me tell you the problem that we have today. The problem in our world today is people don't want to hear that. People don't want to think about that. People don't want to talk about that. They really don't appreciate it when we say things like that. People don't want to give much attention to the idea of sin. People don't want to talk about sin and they sure don't want to be labeled a sinner. Instead, people have all kinds of euphemisms for that, all kinds of other terms they'll use. They'll say, well, I I made a mistake. I misspoke. I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I was trying to do there. People have syndromes, people have addictions, people have lapses in judgment. But who walks around saying, I have sinned. I'm a sinner. I am separated from God. People aren't talking and thinking in those terms today. People aren't comfortable with that. Or maybe it is they're just not like the guilt that comes from that. And as a result of all of that, people today don't feel very lost. People today don't feel very dead. Maybe what's ironic about that is that many people today, as they live in sin and enjoy the pleasures of sin, they don't feel dead. No, they they feel alive. This is what real living is all about. This is real life, to live it up in the pleasures of sin. But I'm submitting to you this morning, the Bible is submitting to us this morning, that until we see the horrible and broken and wretched condition that our sin puts us in, until we see what an absolute mess sin creates for our life, and how ultimately it leads to an eternity in hell fire, until we see just how sick we really are, then we're never going to see the need for the cure. And maybe right here would be a perfect place and an opportune time for me to just say a word about our evangelistic efforts, our efforts to reach people who are lost. Uh, Can you see, Christian? Can you see where it is that we need to start when we're talking with folks about their soul and about the gospel? All too often, I'm afraid we want to jump right to the cure. We're over here talking about repentance and about baptism, but we're talking about that with people who have no understanding of just how sick, just how dead they are. They're not interested in the cure that we have to offer because they don't even see the need for it. And what that says to me is, is that says we need to speak more forcefully about sin about God's estimation of sin. We need to pound away at passages like Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that there are no exclusions to that truth. And that when Paul says here in Ephesians 2 that you, you were dead in trespasses in sin, hmm, I need to take that very, very personally. Because then and only then am I going to see the need or the cure. Somebody would maybe ask, Josh, talking about sickness and so forth and being cured, <laughs> can you be cured of death? 
You know, medical science, they figured out how to take care of all kinds of different physical ailments, but I tell you this, death is not one of them. Death, physical death, that's a pretty permanent situation, don't you think? And so are we saying that spiritual death, that it also is a permanent situation? Is there nothing that can be done about that? Well, maybe that would be the case if Ephesians 2 stopped right there. But it doesn't stop in verse 3. Pick up in verse 4. Here's the cure. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here is the after picture. Verse 4. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the after photo. It is a photo of being alive in Christ. Can there be any more of a stark contrast than that? That we do not have to be hopelessly, helplessly lost and dead in sin. That we actually can be raised together with Him. Raised from the dead. And I'd have you notice all of the terms and expressions Paul uses to explain what makes that possible. Look again there at the passage. God being rich in mercy. His great love for us. By grace you have been saved. The immeasurable riches of His grace. His kindness toward us. So much could be said about all of those expressions. You could just do little sermons about each one of those things. But let me just break out just a couple of very general ideas from all of that. Did you notice, first of all, as we were reading those glorious verses there, that nothing in the passage says that you deserve it? Nothing in there about how you deserve all of this. There's nothing in that passage that says that you're good enough for this. There's nothing in this passage that says that God is obligated to give you these kind of things. God doesn't owe you anything. Somebody will maybe then ask, well, well, why does God offer this salvation stuff? And the answer is simple. It's because He wants to. That's why God does that. Because He wants to. Think for just a moment about the idea of adoption. Paul actually talked about adoption there in chapter 1 and in verse 5. Why does someone adopt a child? Why do people do that? Why do couples travel long distances? Go through all the legal hoops and hurdles? Why do they fill out all of that paperwork? Why do they spend piles of money in order to adopt a child? Ask the Bellwoods, they'll tell you. Because they want to. That's why. They're not obligated to do that. Nobody's forcing them to do that. They do that because they want to. They choose to do that. They want that child in their family. And I need to say to you this morning that the idea of God adopting you, adopting me into His family, that it took greater effort, with all due respect to earthly families who have adopted children, what God did took greater effort than anything that any earthly family will go through because the adoption that Paul is talking about in this book, it is an adoption that was part of an eternal plan that was ratified on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And that was a huge effort. 
That was a huge undertaking on God's part. And listen to this. Nobody made him do that. God was not obligated to do that at all. God was not bound to do that. In fact, the only thing God is bound to do is punish sin. That's called justice. Which would mean, of course, mean, of course, that God chose to adopt us. He chooses, verse 6, to seat us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He does that because He loves us. Even at a time when we were very unlovable. All of that then means that you and I Hope you understand the implications here. What that means is that means that you and I, we can't save ourselves. If there's going to be any saving in this relationship, God's going to do the saving, Paul says. And I think that's really important to say because I think our inclination, just kind of as human beings, is that as soon as I recognize that, yeah, I'm a sinner, did some bad stuff, did some things, that was not good, I shouldn't have done that, that was bad. Our natural inclination, I think, sometimes is, well, in order to counter all that bad stuff, well, I'll just do some good stuff. That'll make up for it. I'll just kind of do a bunch of, here's this pile of bad things I did over here, and I'll do a pile of good, a bigger pile of good things over here, and that'll outweigh all the bad stuff. Back in 1986, there was a fellow playing for the San Francisco Giants. He was the third baseman. His name was Bob Brimley. By Brindley, in the fourth inning, he muffed not one, but two ground balls. A little later in that same inning, he threw a ball over the catcher's head, allowing a run to score. Later in that same inning still, he threw a ball over the first baseman's head and caused other players to score. And when Bob Brindley did that, he became the first major league player in the 20th century to have four errors in the same inning. But then something amazing happened. In the fifth inning, Bob Brindley got up to bat and he hit a home run. In the bottom of the seventh inning, he hit a bases-loaded single driving in two more runs. And then in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, Bob Brindley hit a towering home run that won his team the game. There you go. Four errors in the fourth inning. Boy, that was bad. That was terrible. Lowest point of his life. But then old Bob got up there. Hit a couple home runs. Got a couple base hits. Had some RBIs. Is the hero for his team. Hey, Bob Brindley made up for it. And I think a lot of times, that's how we kind of want to view Christianity. We want to think about salvation in that way. Yeah, well, I, I did some bad things. Did, did, did several bad things. But what I'll do, I'll tell you what I'll do, is I'll just Bob Brindley it. I made some errors, but I'm going to go hit some home runs for the Lord. I'm going to do all these good things for God, and that's going to outweigh the bad stuff that I did, and God's going to give me salvation. Paul comes along in this passage and he says, Nope, that ain't the way it's going to work. Continue reading in Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's going to do the saving in this relationship. Not you, not me, not anybody else. This is not about how we're just so good and how we we got all dressed up and we came to church on a Sunday morning. Or how we did all kinds of good. We read our Bibles. We took some food to sick folks. And now all of a sudden, you know, salvation, just God's just going to give it to me now. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not about anything of your own doing. This 
This is a gift. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. It is offered to us by His grace. Somebody would look at that. In fact, many people in the religious world have looked at that and said, well, well, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? God's just saving everybody by Jesus Christ and by what Jesus did? Well, all right, woohoo, way to go, God. Well, not so fast. Because even though salvation is God's gift, even though it is by His grace, the appropriate question to ask is, how do I receive that gift? How do I obtain the gift that God's offering? And the answer is found right there in the verse that we just read. Would you look at verse 8 again? By grace, through faith. Through faith. What is that? That is total surrender and trust that produces obedience. That's the definition of faith in the Bible. That is what faith is, and that is how the Bible says that we access God's grace. Faith is not, listen to me, it is not just mentally accepting and believing something. No, in the Bible, faith acts. Faith moves. Faith does something. I think about those guys in Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, those uh, friends of the paralytic man, as they let that man down through the roof. The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. He saw their actions. He was able to see it live and in color. Or in Hebrews chapter 11, all those great examples of Faith. We think about Noah and Abraham and Moses and all those people that are mentioned there. In each of those cases, we're told that they did something. By faith, they took action. By faith, they did things. Or I think about Paul talking about in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 5 about the obedience of faith. Faithful people obey. And I'm saying to you this morning, the Bible's saying, that the kind of faith that accepts the salvation, the gracious gift of God, it is a faith that confesses Jesus as God's Son, Romans 10, 9 and 10. It is a faith that repents, that is, turns away from sin and turns to God, Acts 3, verse 19. And it is a faith that leads to the waters of baptism where we are plunged in and under the water so that we can then be raised up with Him in newness of life, alive in Christ. We go on our way rejoicing because we know now that we have been forgiven of our sins. In fact, I'd have you know, it doesn't even stop there. It doesn't stop at the waters of baptism because the grace of God, the gift of salvation, it then motivates us to continue to act in faith. And that's verse 10. Keep reading verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in then. Somebody maybe was getting a little bit concerned a minute ago, saying, well, Josh, all the good works and good things that we do, you make it sound like they don't count for anything. No, they do count for something. We do those things because we are saved. That's what we've been prepared for. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. In the language of some of the old preachers I used to always hear, we have been saved to serve. We have been saved so that we would walk in and live in the things that the King would have us to do. Not because we're trying to to earn our salvation. God, look at me. I, I went to church three times this week. God, look at me. I did all my Bible reading this week. No. No, we do those good works because we realize... That even after all of our obedience, that even after we do a lifetime full of good works, we're still just unworthy servants. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 17.10? 
We're still just unworthy servants who are saved by God's amazing grace. I call your attention especially to that word there in verse 10, the word workmanship. We are His workmanship. One translation actually renders that. We are His masterpiece. And I like that because that just fits perfectly with this idea of the before and the after. Think about what we were before. Black in sin. Pitiful, miserable, really not good for anything. A wretched, vile sinner. The only thing that we were deserving of was death. But look at what God has done. Look at His masterpiece. God has transformed that lowly sinner into a child of His. A son or a daughter of His who reflects the love and the mercy of the Father in every walk of their life to the praise of His glory. This, this is a before and after picture unlike any other. And praise God that we who have been recreated, that we who have been changed into something new, that we can now be someone who is useful for the Master. 2 Timothy 2.21 I am now someone who can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called me out of darkness. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. I am now someone who is in a right relationship with my Creator. How thankful we ought to be every second of every moment of every single day that we who were dead in sin have been made alive in Christ. And in just a couple of minutes, if you have never made your way to the after picture, If you're still there in the before picture, dead in your sins, then you're going to have the opportunity to to change the picture. You're going to have an opportunity to access the grace of God when that invitation song is being sung. But I want you to know before we do that, that's not the only dramatic change that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. Because here in the second half of the chapter, Paul's going to show us another before and after photo, and that is a before and after picture of our relationship with others. And in the immediate context, Paul is specifically addressing the Gentile Christians there at Ephesus. And he wants them to never ever forget what it is that God has done for them. Read with me now, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Paul says, you Gentiles, you are a part, you Gentiles that are a part of that church there at Ephesus, you Gentiles in the flesh, Paul says. Paul says, you need to remember that you are not a part of that nation of Israel. And at one time, you need to remember that you were separated from Christ. You need to think about how you were outsiders. And because of that, Paul's going to say, he's going to say there's this big wall between you and the Jews. In verse 14, Paul's going to refer to it as a wall of hostility. The hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, it really can be traced really almost through every page of Scripture. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. The Jews being the descendants of Abraham... They were God's chosen people. And since God chose them, at least in their mind, what that meant is that meant, well, God hates everybody else. God loves us so much to choose us, He must hate all of you, all the rest of you folks. We're the people of God. 
God loves us just, in, just immensely. God's going to save us. And you know what? If you're not part of the physical lineage of Abraham, well, pfft, just too bad for you. You're just out of luck there. And so for centuries, these two groups of people just in constant conflict with one another. If you were a Jew and I were a Gentile living in Bible times, you would never have me as a guest in your home. You would make every effort not to associate with me. You would try your best not to do business with me and whatever it is that you do for a living. You would view me as being unclean. I would be a dog to you. I am unworthy to even be in your presence. But now, verse 13, but now, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Gentiles now have the opportunity to be a part of the people of God. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that that ought to be very good news for everybody in this room because as best I can tell, that's all of us. We're all probably Gentiles, I'm going to guess. Because in Christ Jesus, bloodlines, they don't matter. It's not significant. Who you're physically related to, that is of no consequence at all. By the blood of Christ, anybody can draw near to God. Anybody can be a Christian. Are you sitting here this morning and not a Christian and you want to be? Guess what? You can. There's not some kind of requirement, not some kind of a, you know, a test you've got to pass, some kind of you know screening that has to be done first before you can become a Christian. You want to be a Christian? You can be a Christian. Anybody can be a part of that group, that collected group that God predestined to be saved, His church. Anybody can have access to God's grace. Paul goes on to reaffirm that. Look in verse 14. For He Himself, Jesus, He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and He preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Whatever hostility existed before, whatever friction there was before, whatever tension there was before, Paul says, that's to be done away. Done away. Doesn't matter who you're related to. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter your education level. Doesn't matter how much money you got in your pocket. Doesn't matter who you know. In Christ There are no party lines. In fact, the operative word here is the word one. Did you notice how many times that popped up there? Look at verse 14. He made us both one. Verse 15, creating Himself one new man. Verse 16, reconciled to God in one body. In the body of Christ, we are one. Jesus is our peace. His blood makes it possible for us to be one. And to be one even with people who are very, very different from us. you ever thought about that? you ever thought about just the diversity of people and backgrounds that we have just in this local congregation? I'm pretty sure that if David Hatfield and I were not Christians, we probably wouldn't be friends. And even if we were not Christians, and even if we knew each other, I'm pretty sure David probably wouldn't even like me at all. 
Red-headed, gangly, red-headed guy, smart aleck. He got a smart aleck remark for everything. I, I just don't think we get, I think there'd be some of that hostility between us. But in Christ, David's a brother. I consider David a very close brother in the Lord. Isn't that amazing to think about? So many people from so many different walks of life. But if there's one, we may have all kinds of differences, but if there's one thing that we do have in common, it is that common faith in Christ Jesus and it is the fact that we are locked arm in arm trying to help each other through this life as we go to heaven. You know, in a day and time when racial conflict is beginning to rear its ugly head once again in this country, how important is it that, that we, the people of God, that we be the people who say this, in fact, that we be the people who say it the loudest, that as many of us who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and that in Christ Jesus there's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for we are all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3. And that's a lesson that the church there in Ephesus, they were having to learn that the hard way. Lots of bad attitudes. Lots of ugliness. Lots of prejudice that Paul says, you guys got to take care of that. You need to get that put away. you got to let go of that so that you can truly be the church of Christ. Paul says it is time to let the grace of God that was so richly showered on each and every one of you individually, you need to start demonstrating that toward one another. You need to think about how God went to extraordinary lengths to build this relationship with you because now you need to do that with one another. And when that happens, Paul says, Paul says you'll be able to be joined together. And that is the after photo. Read with me in verse 19. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think once again about what a contrast of pictures we have. This dividing wall before. Imagine people on both sides of that wall just growling and snarling at one another. And then now what's the after picture? It's the picture of a family. It's a picture of a team. I'll call your attention there to verse 21. Joined together. Can you think of the other passage in the New Testament? that uses that same expression, this may be a good place to make a note in the margin of your Bible, join together, that would be Matthew 19, verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is the very expression that Jesus uses to describe the marriage bond. And now Paul uses that to describe the church bond. We are to be joined together in a spirit of unity. That's something Paul will discuss further in chapter 4. Which means then, just practically speaking, I need to be doing everything that I can to build up, to edify this body. And I want to give you, have you pay special attention there to verse 21 as well. The other metaphor that's used there. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Think about the temple in the Old Testament. What was it that made the temple in the Old Testament so special? You know, there were other buildings in the ancient world that were much more ornate and impressive than the temple in Jerusalem. Think, for example, about the temple of Artemis, which ironically was right here in the city of Ephesus. 
Temple of Artemis was the largest building in the ancient world. I would argue that that probably was a whole lot cooler than the temple in Jerusalem. So what was it that made the temple in Jerusalem so special? Why was it more special? What made it special was the fact that God dwelt there. And because of that, that made it the most special building. Let me ask you, Christian, what is it that makes you special? What is it that sets you apart from all of the other people who are walking the face of this earth? It's the fact that you are a temple of God. That makes you special. The Spirit of God dwells within you. Isn't that what the book says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20? That's what sets you apart. That makes you holy. Which means that that we need to be very careful with what we do with that temple, don't we? We need to be making sure that it is only used to glorify and honor and to serve God. And when we begin to look, even kind of expanding that, when we begin to look at this local congregation, what is this? Well, this, verse 22... This also is a dwelling place for God in the Spirit as we come together to serve and to worship and to honor honor Him. That we, collectively, also are a temple. We are a holy temple set apart for the service of God. We are the body of Christ, and I want you to know, that body of Christ, that holy temple, it is here on earth right now. We're not waiting for it for some undetermined point in the future. No, the temple of God is on earth right now. If you are a Christian, then you are a part of that temple, regardless of your age or color or background or gender. You are in the very thing that God planned from before the foundations of the world. That's this. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All your past sins have been washed away. You are no longer held under the curse of the old law. You have been set free to serve God wholly and completely and fully with a clear conscience, knowing that everything that you do is sanctified by the Holy Spirit as an offering unto God. Why would anyone, why would anyone not want to be a part of that? Why would you not want to throw yourself completely, 100% and fully with all of your heart and mind and soul and spirit Why would you not want to just throw yourself into the service of the living God here in this life, here in this church, here in this community, doing everything that you can to show to others the immeasurable riches of God's grace and then help to bring them into this holy temple, the household of God. That is what Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. That there is nothing better. That there is nothing greater. Paul says you have everything that God has ever wanted to give you. Now don't you dare give it up. Don't you dare let, don't you let sin get back into the picture. Don't you dare corrupt it or defile it. Don't you dare not fight for it. That this is what it's all about. Knowing even this afternoon, if you were on your drive home, if by some chance you did not make it home this afternoon, Because of what the blood of Christ has done for you, you can know that you have a home in heaven with God prepared for you for all of eternity. And that your work, that while you were here on this earth, that it has helped helped others to bring others and offer them that same hope. What an awesome blessing that is. What an awesome blessing all of these things are. Those are blessings. Those are blessings that are only found in Christ. 
You actually can't read the book of Ephesians, those first couple chapters, without seeing that. That everything, all spiritual blessings, they are in one place. In Christ. So as we extend the invitation of the Lord, that's just what we need to ask. We need to ask, are you in Christ? God does have a gracious gift, and He does offer it to you. He offers it to everyone. But you have to access that through faith. You have to get all those blessings when you're in Christ. Is there someone here this morning who has yet to be buried with Christ in baptism? There's a pool of water back there. I make it a routine to check and make sure the water levels up and everything's good to go. Everything's good to go back there. There's garments back here. I am ready. Other people will be ready to assist you and help you. The only thing that's missing from that picture is you. We just need you. Did you come forward? Let us know what it is we can do for you. Let make it known. Hey, I want you to help me to access that gracious gift of God so that I can be saved today. I'll tell you, you do that. You take those steps today. This before and after picture stuff, it'll take on just a whole new meaning to you. This will be the greatest set of before and after pictures that you can ever imagine. Go into that water a sinner, come up out of that water forgiven, you can go on your way rejoicing. Can we help you to become a Christian? Brother or sister, can we help you to be a better Christian? Whatever your need may be, this is your moment. This is your time. Take advantage of it right now while we stand and while we sing.